Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello and welcome back to the American Reformer Podcast. You've got Josh Abitoy here and I'm joined by Timon Klein and uh Today we are um, we've been having very uh, esteemed guests and having very elevated conversations about um, big ideas, and today we're going to take a break break from a bit of that and uh, go back to what we know best, which is uh, Twitter drama and uh, a couple articles in the Amref pages. Uh, but it all ties together, and we think we'll have uh, a lot of fun today. Time and welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Good to uh, yeah be back on our regular shtick here. It's a bit of a, a break from our, as you said, our esteemed guests who obviously call us to a higher level intellectual plane, but uh, we want to get back down in the muck for a little bit. It's, what the, it's what the people want. Um, it's yeah. what the people so. want. And we're, uh, you know, we are, we are um, magnanimous and benevolent monarchs, so we uh, like to give the people what they want every now and then. Exactly. So we're, we're in the bread and circus stage of the American reformers, uh, growth. Um, That's right. yeah. So, so, all right, let's, let's, yeah, well, we can return to bread and circus. Uh, but, but let's, uh, let's go first to Twitter X. Um, yep. X. interesting interaction last week with, uh, with an author, uh, named Samuel D. James. He, he, uh, I think he's written, he's got a new book out called Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. That's out with Crossway. He's got a sub stack. I think he's written a couple times for First Things. Um, yeah, I think that, that seems Folks right. have probably seen him around. Um, he wrote a review of, uh, of Russell Moore's, uh, Russell Moore's new book, which I think, uh, Safe to say, you had quite a different take on uh, Moore's book than than Samuel James did. Yeah, Samuel seemed to to uh, find a lot more to relate to, um, and I found a lot more to get angry about. So, some uh, people can go see the uh, the review on American Reformer from I guess a month or two ago that I did. Uh, seemed to make the rounds pretty well, and I think it's just called Review with the title of of the book. Um, and it was, it was pretty long form, but I, I had a pretty good feedback on it. And yeah, so Samuel James, um, you know, seems like Russell Moore was more formative for him. And he he was uh, pretty appreciative of the new book. Um, but that's neither here nor there for this uh, this interaction. Yeah, totally. Just just kind of sort of setting the table for, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of work this guy does, where he, what, what perspective he's coming from. But um, yeah, he had a tweet that was sort of, uh, very at a very macro level, it was a thread at a very macro level trying to frame Christian nationalism movement. Where where did it come from? Um, what's going on with it? Where is it going? And I, I think it was wrong in a number of spots, but also you know pretty detailed, uh, some pretty strong assertions, and so it's worth kind of digging into a little bit. So. He says, my read on the Christian nationalism movement as 2023 starts to wind down. One, there was a brief but loud peak 2020 to 2021, facilitated by COVID and racial protests. Two, the movement rapidly destabilized into very obvious turf war between factions. Three, 
the personal character of some influential, powerful people within the tribe has been laid bare in a very bracing way. Four, the movement denies that it is racist or kinist, but has failed to either police this in its ranks or cogently explain what its theology of ethnicity is. Five, Christian nationalism is vampiric. It ascended during a crisis <laughs> moment for major evangelical institutions. That crisis moment is not over, per se, but it has receded in vehemence and urgency. Six, CN is uniquely tied to Twitter as an idea distribution center. Seven, that said, CN is definitely a topic in many local churches. It's not just a Christian Twitter thing. Eight, the relationship between ecclesial and doxological health and the amount of CN discourse in a church certainly seems to be an inverse relationship. And that's the end of the thread. Hmm. Um, so so there's, there's a ton here. Um, my, my initial reaction is like he's got several different sort of like operative definitions of Christian nationalism at play. When he talks mm -hmm. about Christian nationalism as a movement peaking in 20 or 21, in those very early years, those ancient times, uh, there was – I'm not sure there was anybody – that was a self-described Christian nationalist yet. Christian nationalism was entirely, um, at least to the best of my recollection, an epithet that was hurled at us by uh, Samuel Whitehead, or, or not Samuel Whitehead, Samuel Perry, uh, Whitehead, uh, Christian Dumez, mm -hmm. that crowd. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think maybe late 21, William Wolfe, uh, started to say he was a Christian nationalist. Um, I think early 22, Russ Vogt ran a piece in, uh, I think it was Time, actually, where he, he said he was a Christian hmm. nationalist. Stephen Wolf started uh, playing around with that name for himself and his views. Um, so, 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 you know, this, this whole adoption of the title by Christians for Christians was really just starting at the end of the period that Samuel identifies as the peak. Yeah. 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 And, and this may have something to do. I mean, this entire thread, it's not that there's, there's not certain insights here, but this is a, you know, something that's constantly annoyed me with some of the critics. I mean, I think it's safe to say Samuel's a, a critic. He's not purely observing um, of the Christian nationalist. He would not identify as one. He clearly thinks there's pro it's, it's problematic in many ways. Um, but this sort of, you know, sociological or pop sociological approach to the whole thing, you know, as a movement, as a, you know, uh, dependent on external, you know, events for its longevity and for its ideas as a, as totally reactionary. Now, there's certainly a reactionary element to it. Um, but there, again, you know, none of this, this thread doesn't deal with any of the ideas in play and what their genesis or recovery might be. So that's always a little bit annoying to me. And so if you're just doing it on this sociological basis, you're bound to kind of get the timeline a little bit off. Yeah. Right. And clearly this is coinciding, you know, it's no, it's no coincidence what what's happening in 2021, uh, the end of the, the Trump's presidency, right. Which I'm sure is what he's tying much of this to is that's, you know, that's the real event. And in, in fact, as you're saying, it's not until Trump is, essentially out of office that anyone's even uh, talking about the label in a positive way or embracing it. I mean, I don't even remember when Marjorie Taylor Greene did it. 
but that was that seems to be after this period as well. well right. And in his second, it was uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene embraced it in 22 as well. I mean, this ties into his second point. The movement rapidly destabilized into an obvious turf war between factions. There was no there was no self like self-avowed Christian nationalist movement until 2022. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, there was, I know that, you know, people tried to say January 6th was a Christian nationalist uprising, but there was no movement. I mean, that was, that was MAGA. Um, yeah. and now some, yeah. some MAGA people maybe end up like coming into Christian nationalism, but, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, the, the unrest of, of 20 and 21, um, that was just a very mm-hmm. general, dissatisfaction with a lot of things that were going on um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and no, no cogent movement had gathered around the, the Christian yeah. nationalist label. And, and, and you know, I, I put the other, the other, the other event that's really important for periodizing the rise of Christian nationalism is NatCon in 2022. I mean, people forget mm-hmm. this, but in the summer in the lead up to that NatCon, Al Mohler on a podcast with Yoram Mazzoni said, yeah, I'm basically a Christian nationalist. And then mm-hmm. um, at NatCon, of course, um, you know, Stephen Wolf presented there. Yoram Mazzoni endorsed Stephen's book. A number of other Christian nationalists presented there. William Wolf, uh, Time and You mm-hmm. presented there. Um, mm-hmm. And even, even on the main stage, Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire in a plenary session mm-hmm. said he was a Christian nationalist. So, so really, yeah. if you want to look at a real peak around the movement as such, I think it's got to be NatCon 22. And yeah. yeah. And maybe not even, I mean, it depends on how long you are on this kind of, well, one, to call it a movement, you know, I, this, this may be unfair. I, it seems to me for something to be a movement, you have to start ha- having some, you know, events, some branding or something mm-hmm. to you know, you need a banner. Mm-hmm. And I just really haven't, haven't seen that. I've seen lots of people engaging with the ideas. Most of the events that were all negative, right? Events have cropped up in uh, resistance to Stephen, essentially Stephen's book. Mm-hmm. Um, and a book, you know, does not a movement make, but there's definitely something going on. So that's what he's putting his finger on. We all agree about that. And I would agree with you that, um, you know, NatCon 22 is, is a more significant event, especially for the ideas. I mean, it's kind of a more wonky conference, but has a, you know, it's popular and it's well attended. Yeah. Um, and that would be, if anything, I would say that's like the introduction of anything that could be called a movement. It's where people showed up one place, legitimate people willing to endorse or embrace the label. And even if they're not embracing the label, I mean, I remember some of the speeches at that one, you know, you had even people like Rod Dreher who went on this, I don't remember what it was all about. It was kind of rambling, but this speech of talking about America post 9-11 in a very providentialist way that was, you know, would coincide with much of Christian nationalist rhetoric, if not ideas. So you, that, that conference in particular, you had a lot of people willing to engage the, the orbit of these ideas or at least adjacent ideas. And so I would say that conference was like, that's when it would begin if there's a movement that's discernible, that's cogent in any way of people pulling on some of these strings, embracing some of these ideas, talking about them at a high developmental level, then I would say that's it. And this would be, you know, two years after he says it's peaked. Yeah. Maybe the way I would put it, I would probably put it as NatCon 22 was a shot across the bow 
where Christian nationalist intellectuals and other people on the new right who are sympathetic to Christian nationalism made their presence known in a very powerful way. And Mm -hmm. that momentum hasn't died since then. I mean, it, you know, whether it's in the pages of American reformer or first things, which first things is very generally speaking, uh, a friendly platform for these discussions. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's Stephen Wolf um, being platformed at ISI. Um, You know, the the, the agitation and intellectual foment around these topics is only increasing. I mean, even, you know, go to, I mean, the the recent American Moment event in D.C., which was held in um, one of the Senate buildings, right? Um, You know, Mm -hmm. Doug Wilson, Chip Roy, Russ Vogt, and Jeff Schaefer, um, you know, talking to a room with like 300 uh, rising Hill staffers about Mm -hmm. Christian views on immigration uh, restriction. I I mean, the, 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 it's just an, it's, it's a very odd diagnosis. It, It feels as, as guys who are in various ways, like adjacent to the movement, um, mm-hmm. it, it feels like a very strange characterization. It's, it's, there, there feels yeah. like there's tremendous momentum. I, I would agree. I mean, um, you know, to toot our own horn again, I mean, we've, we've run continuous, I would say since Stephen's book came out, continuous engagement with the ideas in various ways, yeah. which is, um, to this point is, is really organic. I mean, other than the symposium we did on his book when it came out, um, you know, to have reviews, there's been continuous, you know, engagement with Christian nationalism just by people wanting to write about it and talk about it. So that's totally organic and kind of ground up. And we've just been the place to, you know, a, a landing pad for many of them. First things, like you said, has done uh, similar work and and from the, you know, from the editor's office down. I mean, so, you know, Rusty Reno was on a panel not too long ago with a, a bunch of other Catholics moderated by Russ Douthat at New York Times, uh, where they engage with this and, and, you know, two, uh, that was not that long ago, it was this year, you know, Reno was still embracing the label and the ideas and defending Stephen's book, which, you know, is a pretty big deal. I think at this, at this stage, like you said, Stephen's been at, invited to legitimate uh, places, you know, ISI, you said UD, uh, mm-hmm. George Washington. So just, you know, and the book, and we, we just did a spaces, um, the, the recording will be going up this week, actually on our podcast. Um, we just did a spaces, you know, with Stephen kind of and others, other friends um, reviewing, you know, the past year. And he pointed out, you know, in a very grateful way that, um, you know, he was humbled that as it was kind of an author's dream that we're a year into the book out and it's it's getting just as much talk as it was like a year ago. You know, it's it continues to live rent free in so many people's heads. Um so anyway, the, I mean, we've beat up that first point quite a bit. Yeah. The, uh, uh, I just think from the from the get go here that he's he's off in his analysis because maybe he's uh, probably on the outside looking in quite a bit. Uh, I, I doubt he has that many uh, friends or uh, that he's that he's or at least people he's friendly with that are kind of on the inside of this movement, which I would say at this point does constitute a movement, but it would not happen twenty 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 one. Yeah, and and um, I'm not Samuel's friend currently, but if Samuel happens to listen and he wants to talk to a reasonable guy who follows the movement, I would say Samuel, send me a DM or whatever, and uh, we can talk about it. Um, so uh, okay, let's 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 keep going. Um, 
He says the personal character of some influential people in the in the tribe has been laid bare in a very bracing way. I have no idea what he's referring to with that, um, unless he means yeah. the the Acord doxing, which is like um, Acord's such a, a minor non public figure in all of this. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it's like I, that's a stretch. Um, number yeah. four, especially if he's talking yeah. about the again the quote unquote movement. I mean, all of that surrounded you know Stephen's book, and right. that was all um, right before it came out or right as it came out in November of of twenty two. Um, you know, and and from although it did get some coverage from like Rod Dreher, a lot of that was inside baseball. Yeah. You know, for uh, so uh, I would say though, what he's getting at it seems to me is three and four are in the same tweet yeah. here, and they go together, and it's probably some. Uh, you know, he he clearly thinks, as many people do, that there's you know a, a racist or kinist element to all of this, and that a lot of that I think is being brought in since Stephen's book was published by Canon, and um, you know. Another one we didn't mention already is Doug Wilson has continued to engage in this mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and has written his own kind of proposal, we could call it, Mere Christendom, yeah. uh, when, in which he disagrees some with with Stephen. And he's done the same thing in his blogs, um, but is but is a good faith interlocutor and really, you know, seems seems to be excited about the energy surrounding uh, people trying to do Protestant political theory well. Um, so I assume that the Moscow uh crowd you know with with things that have been said about them over the years is part of what's animating this too and so it's yeah. the assumption is that it's there's a racist and kinist element here because people in the in the movement are willing to talk about uh immigration restriction which you already talked to you know mentioned has been a topic or um you know sort of natural affections or these kinds of topics that used to be very commonplace. I mean, if you go to Aristotle, if you go to Aquinas, whatever, and people just want to talk about them again. And and it's brought on a lot of, I think, very unfair charges that it's, it's all racist and kinist. And that's the whole goal. Yeah. And, and I should just say like, if Samuel wants a cogent explanation of Christian nationalist ideas about ethnicity, like he can go read Wolf's book. Uh, there's a very yeah. cogent explanation. Maybe you disagree with it. Mm-hmm. You can explain how, but the like Wolf set forward in an extremely cogent discussion of ethnicity mm-hmm. um, in his in his book, and it's it's um, you know it's 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 a tough argument. It requires people to um, to reset their definition of ethnicity from the, mm-hmm. the modern uh, conception and and kind of step back into the conception that the pre-modern world had about ethnicity, but it's, it's cogent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly mm-hmm. could not be accused mm-hmm. of, of like incoherence or, you know, um, it, it's consistent with the tradition. So. Yeah. Just yeah. because it's paradigm altering doesn't mean it's incoherent. It means you have to adjust to understand it. Yep. And, you know, one thing I know Stephen's been criticized a lot for, I think unfairly is, you know, not enough use of the Bible mm-hmm. in, uh, in his book, well, his, his definition of, of ethnicity or try, how he tries to handle it, we don't have to get into all that now, um, does seem to me to coincide with a much more biblical approach uh, to the idea than a uh, modernist, you know, post-Darwinian, uh, you know, race, right? Which is, which is over, I've heard him say multiple times, he thinks is just dumb and overly simplistic and doesn't explain anything. Right. Um, and he's actually following much of 
what we would call secular scholarship on these issues where he's just looking at the literature and saying, look, they, you, he was posting this the other day. He was like, here's scholars, you know, on, they wouldn't agree with me on anything, but they're, they're defining these things similarly. They're saying race and ethnicity are not the same, you know, and if you really want to get, um, into understanding sort of causal factors in the way people organize or whatever, you know, you have to look at ethnicity. It's a much broader, rich uh, sort of uh, label, mm-hmm. and it, it accounts for things like religion and, and culture and all this, which is what he wants to talk about. So I, do, I agree with you. You don't, have to, you don't have to think he like lands the plane totally or with all the landing gear intact, but you can at least say this is a, this is a first really good faith attempt to engage this topic, which is explosive. This guy was willing to try to do it. He's not doing it in a racist or kinist way on my reading of the book and it's worth engaging. So. Yeah, to- totally. And, uh, okay. We've got we, m- moving on to the okay. remainder yeah. of Sam's yeah. points, which I'm not, I'm not going to hit on all of them in individual detail, but he has a very negative view on what this is. I mean, from where you and I sit, I think we yeah. say the modern world is crazy. A lot mm-hmm. of young men, young Christian men, are just open to intellectual foment on pre-modern ideas mm-hmm. about justice and politics. And that's great. And we're having fun. It's, it's good. Mm-hmm. We're thinking hard and thinking seriously about um, not only the ideal uh, kind of political arrangements, but then, you know, how to take practical steps uh, towards that ideal given our current conditions. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's actually a really fun time if you're intellectually interested in this stuff, mm-hmm. but his view on this is is somewhat, um, you know, pessimistic. I mean, he thinks it he thinks it's a Twitter driven uh, discourse, mm-hmm. which we we are strong on Twitter. I will admit that, but but mm-hmm. kind of like, and it's it's bad. I mean, the, the 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 vision he would paint is that it's like a bunch of crazy suits who have terminal Twitter brain, and then they're they're going to mm-hmm. their local churches and messing everything up. Uh, they're, you know, not good members. They're, they're causing problems and, and, you know, strain within the local church. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he elaborated on that. I, I actually got into a bit of a back and forth with him and he elaborated further on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think I would just say from where I sit, um, those are, look, there's no studies, there's no data on this. We're just, at this point, we're just comparing anecdotal evidence. So what would I say mm-hmm. I've seen? Um, I've seen uh, I've seen especially in Stephen Wolf's work and some of the other articulations of Christian nationalism, I've seen a a rising uh, political will among conservative Protestants and a, a, an understanding that um, if if we're not having influence and political control in politics, things are going to be crazy. They're going to be bad. They're going to be unjust. And I'm seeing, I think, a good and healthy desire amongst a lot of people of our generation to pursue a political vocation. And mm-hmm. I combine that with, um, I think a lot of, like, I'm seeing a lot of conversions right now. This is something people don't talk about mm-hmm. about this a lot. But, like, I'm seeing, um, I'm seeing very interesting guys, like, you know, literally like special operations, you know, special forces guys, investment bankers, mm-hmm. high performing young men who have been attracted to the new right um, and maybe even like pagan elements of the new right. I'm seeing a lot of them actually like 
getting interested in Christianity and the draw is, wow, like society's totally going off the rails because we've abandoned any kind of moral order. And like those people are primed for like an understanding um, for, for when they, when they understand that Christianity has a social order and then, you know, of course they, that's, that's your entree. And then, and then, you, then they come to understand, well, you know, I'm a sinner. Like I don't live up to this. Like I myself make society bad because, um, you know, I'm a sinful person. And then they, they, they come to personal repentance and I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot of that. Again, it's anecdotal. We're not going to have studies to, to prove or disprove it to each other, but, but, um, you know, the, the pessimism in Samuel James's outlook is, is very strange to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say actually that, that um, I'm not going to call it projection, but, you know, Samuel does, does say that, you know, this is not just a, a Christian Twitter thing. It is, it is having, you know, it's, it's in the real world, it's, it's hit the ground. Um, but I would say a lot of this analysis is limited by only, um, you know, Twitter observations. Um, and probably in different circles than many of us run in. So, I mean, you know, here, here's the real story of, of like Christian nationalism, as I see it, as it's, it's emerged is one, you know, the label itself, which even Stephen Wolf has says, you, you don't have, you know, I don't really care about the label. Like this is a, a vehicle for ideas. Um, so it's a heuristic in many ways. And, you know, as I tell our proponents and critics alike, this is not a finished product. This is, this is the first foray into Protestants becoming politically self-conscious again and trying to recover their own ideas. And then the really heavy lift is implementing them in context, right? Which it takes even more. It's the secondary conclusions, these kinds of things. So this takes work and it's just, it's just kind of started in earnest as I, as I read it. And so there does need to be a, a level of patience from both sides. I think if you're going to be a good faith critic, you need to be patient. And if you're going to be a proponent, you need to, to measure your enthusiasm a little bit. And so don't get, you know, so attached to certain aspects of these ideas that you, you know, then become immovable and you're not nimble, uh, which is a bad political posture. So this is, this is really the story of Protestants late to the party, um, but finally coming out um, in, this, in this way and trying to uh, make a run at it. And like you said, this is certainly reactionary in the sense that we're looking at you know what what's happened to the world, and then and then trying to figure out the causes of the the demise of our country in many ways, especially socially, and you know a lot of that, as as Aaron Wren would tell you, is because of a, a downgrade in Protestant leadership mm -hmm. and a downgrade in Protestant political engagement and these sorts of things. So we're trying to assess all that and then recover our tradition. Um, and then learn how to use those ideas in a very different context that none of us, of course, have ever encountered before. Um, you know, the other thing to your point, which is, like you said, anecdotal, but very interesting of people drawn to the new right. Um, you know, many of them in high performance jobs. So that's, you know, they've got to do it kind of on the down low, but they're reading these things. They're watching the discourse. And then actually at some point they get turned to Christianity as provide, you know, filling some of the gaps that the, maybe we'd call the pagan or Nietzschean new right mm -hmm. camp, which has been something an American reformer because no one else seems to do it. We've been very interested in trying to gauge that part of the discourse too, to really see young 
you know, generally white men, mm -hmm. uh, many of them in white collar jobs as sort of a, a, a mission field of like, no one cares about these guys, but they're the ones that if we're, if we were to have new Protestant leadership, they would have to supply it probably. Um, so we've tried to engage some of the, you know, pagan new right yeah. in order to, to show people that, Hey, they, they get a lot of things right, especially in their, their analysis of the state of affairs. But the, you know, ultimately this needs to be, your answers need to be in the final order rooted in your tradition. And of, and of course, uh, which is a Christian Protestant one. Um, and I would say I've seen those similar, you know, he talks about policing the movement or whatever at some point in this, you know, I've actually seen on Twitter just observing, you know, even with it, like a non accounts that are very, very clearly on the Christian new right, as we could call them, mm -hmm. kind of policing each other of I saw a tweet not long ago, this is just an anecdote of, you know, a guy posting, you know, he can't see his face because he's a non, but posting himself at the gym on a Sunday afternoon. And he just got ratioed by a bunch of other Christian Anon accounts who clearly are into, you know, lifting and, and this stuff <laughs> and, and just totally castigating him for not rest using the Lord's day as his rest day. Yeah. And he have came back around and like, you know, in a Twitter way, repented of this, <laughs> this oversight. So it was just, you know, it's a hilarious thing of they're, they're serious about this, right? It might seem like all fun and games, but they're just as serious about honoring the Lord's day as they are about getting to the gym. So you can't just blow it off as having no positive effect. Yep. Yeah, one one hundred percent. I think. What do you think? Are we done on this? I think we've said. Enough. I think we're done on this. We. Uh, I mean, we've we've set ourselves up now to talk about the uh, you know the regime, which I think we need to. Yeah. So let me let me just let me just set you up here, Josh. So we if um, for those not following along along at home as much as you should, uh, we've got the second part of a series just dropped on the 29th of September from Maximum Leader, Executive Director Josh Abatoy, who I have on the call here. Um, this is a series that, Josh, you've been talking to me about for, for several weeks, sort of sketching out, and, and, I, and I was pushing you to write it. So you, you started doing that, and the second part just came out, and it's, a, it's total fire, as we'd say on Twitter. Um, I really enjoyed reading this one, but maybe you could just bring people up to speed on the, the purpose uh, or trajectory of the series and, and then bring us into the second um, installment. Yeah. So more broadly, you know, you've, uh, unless you've been under a rock, you probably hear um, a wide range of commentators on the new right from lowly Twitter influencers all the way up to um, eggheaded intellectuals using the word regime to describe uh, the entity or set of entities that wield sovereignty in America in 2023. And the, I wanted to explain this concept to our readers. I, I, I mean, basically we need, we need an explainer. So, so the first article in the series was just that. It was literally saying, the regime is a set of actors that includes governmental actors, but also includes institutions of civic society and to some extent corporate leaders. And they're all sort of uh, working together in a symbiotic way uh, that is that we call uh, the regime. Uh, and we it's, it's sort of properly a regime because it is exercising uh, political like political power. Right. It's not just mm -hmm. merely mm -hmm. economic power or whatever else. And that is a new state of affairs. I mean, as you know, um, 
very early in the 20th century, the um, our, our our sort of our constitution had a um, what Bruce Ackerman calls a constitutional moment, where mm-hmm. it was sort of blown open to allow this incredible expansion of the federal bureaucracy. Um, and, uh, you know, initially the Supreme Court resisted this, even though there was tremendous political will behind it. And then ultimately um, a very, uh, maybe our most dictatorial president, FDR, uh, pushed it through uh, by threatening the Supreme Court. Um, you know, on, he, on a couple of occasions, he did outright uh, disregard the Supreme Court. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, he pushed this through. We had the famously the save in time that saved nine um, and, uh, y- you know, the, the, the American state was totally transformed. That's not what I mean by regime that like everything I've said so far is a very trad normie conservative account. Um, mm-hmm. we all know that that happened and that the administrative state is, um, was a distortion to our founding structure and to some extent represents a, um, an, an aristocracy of sorts. It's a sort of a degraded aristocracy because it doesn't actually pick the best. Um, but anyways, mm-hmm. it, so that's all happened and we, we know that. Um, but, but something very, something more particular has changed in the last uh, 10 to 20 years um, that the new right recognizes and includes um, in its diagnosis of the regime. And that is um, one uh, sort of a total collapse of meaningful disagreement among uh, institutions of civic society, right? So um, universities, uh, charitable foundations, uh, mainline churches, uh, you know, these, these sorts of institutions had just a total collapse in ideological diversity or commitment to ideological diversity. They are to varying degrees now um, entirely controlled by the progressive left. Similarly, uh, corporations have followed a similarly uh, a similar pattern uh, to where you know if especially if you're a Fortune 500, if you're a public company with a board, uh, there is now only really one correct attitude to have um, on social issues, and it's really an attitude of deference uh, to the the values and. Uh, I mean, the metaphysics that are promulgated by civic society. And of course, civic society is now relatively ideologically monolithic. Um, I pinpoint the start of that. I I think the Brandon Ike firing is like a, is kind of a Rubicon Mm -hmm. The guy who founded his own founder of Mozilla Firefox, founded his own company. It was discovered he'd given a thousand dollars to the proposition eight campaign in California and activists ran him out of his own company in 2012 that got a lot of guys sitting up straight in corporate America. It's like, mm-hmm. you will be canceled. You cannot run a company. If you've done something publicly, like either, you know, said it or given a little money to it um, on anything like on the conservative side of the aisle, any sort of sign of resistance to uh, the progress agenda that generally speaking, civic society is now entirely bought into. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that change, I think, now represents when, when we when the new right talks about the regime that what we're doing is we're saying, properly speaking, those institutions of civic society and ideologically captured corporations 
are political actors, and as such, they're they're sort of they're political enemies in our politics. Um, mm-hmm. So so that was all sort of my first you know foray explaining the concept, and I think somewhat defending its usefulness as a topic, uh, as, as a mm-hmm. phrase. Um, and I think the the best way to sort of understand this is to see it in operation, right? And um, I say mm-hmm. the whole the, the regime depends upon mutual deference of the participating institutions. And so mm-hmm. you see this in operation in something like COVID, where there's this sort of um, a group think uh, catches on and then it, 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 it reaches ascendancy across all of society incredibly quickly. And, and dissent is crushed very effectively and quickly. So in COVID, of, of course, now with the benefit of hindsight, we say, wow, like, you know, the prudence of lockdowns and mask mandates and forced vaccines, that always should have been kind of questionable. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, at the time we saw uh, any credible experts, even very well-published and well-regarded experts who didn't toe the line, were broadly deplatformed. Um, there was just remarkable unanimity between all of the institutions of civic society, uh, the bureaucrats running the major uh, organizations like the CDC, and then also corporations. And so the, the COVID is a great uh, test case to kind of show the operation of the regime in action. And they're all mutually deferring to each other and reinforcing each other. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so anyways, I, I say all that another example you could use there is the 2020 election and, you know, look at the, read the time magazine article that talks about how this vast, impressive array of civic society and corporations and all the rest united to defeat Trump. Um, that's, that's, that is also sort of a, a, a event that reveals the extent of the regime. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, and even even in that, uh, you know, to just to bring people up to speed, you know, that Time article you're talking about. If people haven't read that, I mean, they they definitely should. And it's not even that there's, um, you know, the, the impressive thing about it, as you said, is the, is the sheer the the political will mustered by people in disparate. Uh, you know, organizations, professions, uh, you know, it is, it is very, a very impressive kind of feat that they, they performed. And you're like, well, how do they, how is this possible? You know, cause, right. cause we're generally catechized in America today to think everything is, is extremely, um, you know, that things are separate or separable and that the, you know, things are operating maybe in a parallel way, but there's not a lot of real communication between them. And what we're saying with this, uh, this concept of the regime is like, well, because there's so much um, agreement in a sort of almost worldview sense from, you know, the people at the New York Times, the people at Harvard, and the people, you know, at the CDC or something, they all not only defer to each other because they respect each other's position with and it's self-serving in the current status hierarchies, but they also just think the same way about occurrences. They've been they've been conditioned by the same institutions and the same uh, preferences and all these things to think the same way. So it's it's sort of a, a natural occurrence in that sense. It's like you know a, a flock of birds flying together, um, where there's no you know no one's telling them to turn at a given moment. They just do it um, because they all yes. you know, are sort of on yeah. the same frequency. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not a conspiracy. Um, but it, it is a, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's an organism mm-hmm. that, that, you know, of yeah. which it's an organism in which the administrative state, um, 
corp- large corporations and civic society are all sort of organically connected as organisms uh, in this symbiotic mm-hmm. relationship. So yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. And and um, yeah. So so okay. So so just stepping forward, then that's sort of setting the table definitionally. Um, mm-hmm. And then my my second article was talking about. Um, it was talking about the fact that the the regime, uh, one of the functions uh, of the regime, or an aspect of how it functions, is that its political power is sort of hidden or obscured. Like it will it will tend to be very effective. It will tend to win, um, and it's sort of odd on its face why it does so, especially when you look at like particular political issues where the people of this country uh, have significant disagreement, uh, maybe, you know, it's 50-50, evenly divided, or, or maybe even the majority of the people support the opposite of what the regime wants, but the regime tends to win. And I, I say this is kind of explainable in part by the fact that, you know, electoral, m- much of the regime's operation and the results it gets are not subject to, to democratic processes, um, and so, you know, this is, this is part of what, what needs to be recognized. The regime uh, generally is very, praises democracy, and they almost sound fundamentalist about it, like there's no other type of government that could ever be just, um, all of this stuff. But when you actually dig into um, regime priorities, very often, that like the, the regime, so to speak, is very comfortable um, co- totally devoting itself to destroying democratic outcomes. So, right. you know, the, the, um, the Time magazine, the, the regime, most powerful uh, institutions and corporations in society said, we need to put all of our weight on one side of the scale to influence the outcome of a democratic process um, in the 2020 mm-hmm. election. Um, of course, even before then, the um, unelected officials in the intelligence community took it upon themselves to spend four years undermining the president in every possible turn, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. including these like horrifying breaches of ethics and breaches of um, the trust that's put in them, uh, you know, uh, getting FISA warrants to spy on the Trump campaign with like completely fabricated evidence that they should have known was fabricated mm-hmm. when they submitted it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so, so you've got all of that. And then you've got all these like, you know, Brexit uh, was, was popularly voted for, but it was a threat to, uh, to our democracy, to open societies. Jair Bolsonaro was a threat to democracy. Proposition 8 in California was a threat to our democracy, which, you know, vote in California against gay marriage that got overturned by courts. Um, right. The left's, the, the, the left's allegiance to democracy is a euphemism for a progressive set of outcomes. Mm-hmm. And the regime uh, properly understood the like much of its power lies outside of democratic process, and and so mm-hmm. this when you when you get that into your head, then some really kind of odd things start to make sense. Like for example, for about forty years, the people of America have wanted border security, and it's never happened. And it's not all that hard. I mean, it, people, um, you know, building a wall, uh, it it makes it significantly easier to police our southern border with modest personnel and all the rest. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's never happened, even though it's such a modest like investment relative to all the things 
we could have built that wall several mm-hmm. times over with all the money we've already sent to Ukraine. And it just, it never happens. <laughs> and well, and, the, and the, the, just to be, it, to hammer this point, just cause it's a, it's a galvanizing issue. You know, the wall too is it's, um, not only sensible, I mean, there were tons of articles when the wall is announced by Trump, there's all these articles about how medieval it is and everything. And I'm like, well, now you're just, now you're really going to entice the new right because we like medieval stuff. Oh, yeah. But the, the point is, you know, the, the wall, which I think is a perfectly sensible way to handle it. You can look at some of these European, I was just seeing a video from Poland the other day where they're just refusing migrants and they like barely have a razor wire fence. Like it's not impressive but they have soldiers posted there and it's just not happening. I mean, they have the political will to say no. And so it really doesn't matter how you do it. You can find ways to police it. Um, and we've done none of it. I mean, the wall was kind of a, a picture. The wall not being built was kind of a picture of the lack of political will or maybe stifled political will, you would say, given this analysis, um, to just not do something that is not only for the good objectively of the country and necessary for a sovereign nation, but has also been demanded through democratic process in various ways. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's still not happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it's it's um, so it's a great example. I mean, there's other ones, right? Like the a lot of the extreme stuff in the transgendered movement and gender ideology is very unpopular if it's ever squarely on the ballot, it gets rejected. I mean, I think that Youngkin's victory in, in Virginia was was represented gender theory and CRT on the ballot, and he won there. Um, but just generally speaking, these are deeply unpopular with voters. Um, you know, you could, I, I mean, a lot of the soft on crime policies are deeply unpopular with voters. I mean, if, mm-hmm. when they're polled, um, a lot of minority inner city communities say that crime and lack of a police presence is like a major issue, like one of their priorities, mm-hmm. but it never gets reflected in, well, it, it rarely gets reflected um, in the behavior of their political leaders. Um, mm-hmm. even, even consider someone like uh, the new mayor of New York, who actually ran mm-hmm. on sort of a tougher on crime platform, but then gets in and very quickly uh, slides over to a more permissive stance. And so what yeah. I say... I mean, what I say is that the the regime has many tools of incentives and disincentives that will be incredibly powerful and and you know ultimately can can move politicians uh, to make policy decisions that you might say in a purely electoral sense are political suicide, like this mm-hmm. this rash of DAs across the country that. Um, let everybody out of prison. Um, you know, some of them, some of them got reelected. A lot of them didn't, and they they were able to, you know, sort of participate in this movement partly because there are thick incentives and disincentives. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how you pronounce this guy's name, Chisa Boudin, uh, this this uh, DA from mm-hmm. San Francisco. Um, I mean, turn turn San Francisco into a dystopia. Uh, mm-hmm. and was was ousted uh, in, in a recall election um, and uh, like walked right into the executive directorship of a new center for criminal justice at UC Berkeley, which is one of the top law schools in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, who um, 
was terrible on COVID, very unpopular for that, but also very soft on crime. Um, and also hilariously uh, designated racism as a public health crisis uh, in order to get you know funding and various other things that came from that. And she also lost re-election resoundingly, very politically unpopular, uh, waltzes right into a lectureship at Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and, uh, and then even, I mean, even go, even go more extreme. Like there's very extreme examples, like the left rewarded Bill Ayers and Angela Davis. These people are Mm -hmm. terrorists, right? Like political terrorists. Mm -hmm. And they, um, you know, at various times had sinecures and other affiliations with some of the nation's most prestigious schools. Um, some of them were advisors to democratic presidents and, you know, various, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, 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 uh, they're radical chic. Uh, they are high status leftist radicals. And yes, what, what I say is so, so, so on the one hand, there's all of these safety nets incentives, you know, for you to be a radical left winger, it will, it will increase your status in society. You're probably going to be okay. You can do crazy stuff politically and then waltz right into comfortable positions at any of the major um, civic society institutions. You can probably also go be on the board of a fortune 500 too. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, meanwhile, on the other side of the aisle, um, like, you know, here's a guy I think about, you know, Mike Anton, who was in the Trump administration had worked at BlackRock before the Trump administration. Um, I, I am extremely skeptical that BlackRock would have taken him back when he got done at the Trump administration. And then, you know, he ended up landing a, a gig at Hillsdale. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. the list of places that would have taken a guy like him is not very long. Um, mm-hmm. The right does not have radical chic terrorists. Like we don't have, um, we just don't do that. I mean, generally speaking, like the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the people who did the Charlottesville March, for example, they're just like incredibly low status. They're not getting anywhere near our institutions. They're totally out there by themselves, you know, and even like we do have some radical intellectuals, um, you know, like a guy like Samuel Francis, but as, as you well know, like if you, if you say, like, if you write a book, you know, Hey, Samuel Francis had a, had a good idea on this one point, you know, that, that helps explain things. Mm-hmm. Like you may get canceled for that. People people will try to destroy yeah. you merely for doing that. Like you have to have multiple degrees mm-hmm. of separation between yourself and the right wing radical. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's no, I mean, there's just no, there's no backstop um, for courageous right wing political action. Um, you know, the big, the, like the big lawyer guys who um, swarmed the state of Florida during Bush v. Gore. Uh, you know, when Trump had election disputes, they were nowhere to be seen. And that's not merely about the merits of the case. It's about how the legal profession and Fortune 500s have changed in that intervening time. Um, mm-hmm. Going forward, it's going to be difficult for Republicans to get access to some of the top legal talent for their campaigns and for their administrations. Um, yeah. Because- yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. I mean, you know, we were on the younger side in 2000, but it, I mean, you can look back at who, you know, when you have the dispute in Florida and everyone's starting to project, you know, this is going to go to the Supreme court. You had overnight what was roundly considered to be some of the top legal talent in the country yeah, um, and former, former administrative officials, you know, secretaries of state, all this kind of stuff swarm, uh, you know, down there um, 
essentially, like I said, overnight to the campaign headquarters to start working on strategies. And you would never have seen that. I mean, you didn't see that in 2020, even with anomalies that were in place that were recognized. And, you know, Trump had this sort of ragtag band that was increasingly losing, you know, members as 20 as 2020 uh, wound down. You know, it's a totally different scenario. I mean, I know I know guys in big law firms in, you know, some of the affected states who knew there were irregularities, have done election law, thought that there were live claims, but they were literally facing a decision between um, do I get involved and lose my like lose my career at my prestigious law firm, mm-hmm. or do I stay on the sidelines? And mm-hmm. I'm I'm personally aware of multiple cases like that in both Georgia and Arizona. Um, it, yeah. So, so so th- this is all indicative. Like I could go on and on, but the the bottom line point here is that the regime has thick incentives and disincentives that it can use to reward um, aligned behavior and punish misaligned behavior. And what that does is it just, it, it, it imposes this incredibly high cost on the emergence of any possible conservative elite. Um, mm-hmm. It, uh, even if conservatives get a uh, electoral win, they will be totally cordoned off from civic society and fortune 500s in a way that makes it very difficult for them to be politically effective. And yeah. So we, we need to recognize this reality and then we need to say, okay, so what, what, like, if you've now recognized this reality, congratulations, how does that impact your political strategy? And I say a couple of things. The, the first one is, I mean, it's kind of a simple conclusion from all of that, which is um, institutions of civic society uh, need to be either one taken over if possible or else two delegitimized mm-hmm. like it and when i say taken over like a big public university in a red state can be taken over that's an attainable objective mm-hmm. it's happening in florida mm-hmm. it can happen in other places um you know or here's another thing like a lot of deep red states have public money that you know they manage retirement funds for teachers and things like that billions under management mm-hmm. actually I think mm-hmm. all the red states together, trillions under management. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they can they can say like if they collectively and they're starting to think about this, like do do we, how do we use all that money as leverage? Do we take it away from BlackRock, who uses our proxy votes to advance ESG and mm-hmm. all this terrible stuff, or do we try to take it away to somebody else? Mm-hmm. So so that represents in places where it is attainable, um, you know, taking over, better leveraging uh, these assets. Um, But in other cases, you know, there's no possible way to take it over. So it just must be delegitimized. Like we're not going to take Mm -hmm. over Harvard. So Mm -hmm. Harvard needs to be delegitimized. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The other thing is. Which and say maybe say very quickly, uh, Josh, because you're moving to the next point. But, you know, the way you delegitimize Harvard is for is to essentially. Uh, try to attack at least within your own ranks to start its prestige by not um, engaging with it, right? Not sending your kids there, not just because they can't get in or, you you know, whatever, but choosing saying, you know, which people are starting to do this. I mean, there's a reason Hillsdale's acceptance rate is something like 18% at this point. Yeah, I I think in in a decade, they they, have totally set up this, um, what could begin to be a parallel 
incentive structure. Conservative elites used to send their kids to Harvard. Um, most conservative elites now aspire for little Johnny or Sally to go to Hillsdale. That's just like, like right. literally like right. the, you know, guys who are guys who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars who could buy a seat for Johnny or Sally at Harvard are opting mm-hmm. to send their kids to Hillsdale instead. That's great. That's right. a good sign. And by the way, I should say like, because I'm a Harvard graduate, my, um, <laughs> my my railing against Harvard is an admission against interest. And if you remember your evidence law, it should be assigned more credibility <laughs> for that reason. Okay. So I'm just going to say right. that. Right. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not like this, what I'm advocating for is not good for me because like, you know, it's like, yeah, there, there still is some lingering legacy, like prestige or credibility that comes with those degrees. But but, you know, increasingly so it's getting lost. We need to help accelerate that process. And, you know, also, um, I mean, a lot of these institutions are doing plenty to discredit themselves on their own. So, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and this is one reason why I'm, I'm just, I'm more sanguine in general than like a Curtis Yarvin or some of these other new right people. Um, mm-hmm. the, um, the regime, like, like COVID, I think really, really represented a loss of credibility for the regime. They were wrong. We mm-hmm. all know it in hindsight now. I think the transgender craziness is a credibility crisis for them as well. Um, people can just mm-hmm. see with their own eyes and understand that mm-hmm. it's not healthy to be chemically permanently castrating, you know, ten-year-olds. Um, and and yeah. when you once you once you cease to believe them on that one thing, their loss of credibility is like transferable to other domains. So it's the the whole the mm-hmm. whole structure. Fauci was wrong. Therefore, like I trust every government bureaucrat quite a bit less. That's, that's what's going on. Yeah, Same yeah. thing with civic society and, and fortune 500s. Mm-hmm. So when yeah. it's, and it's these sort of glitches, you know, it's, it's only when everything's moving smoothly, the whole point, as you said, is you don't notice the operation right. of the regime, right? Because it's normal. It's status quo. It's when there's a glitch for a moment and people have a chance to catch their breath and notice something's not operating the way it should and that there's confusion, that's when you see its fragility and also its its true nature, right? And so you even see, I think the immigration crisis throughout the whole West, and, and uh, you know, a lot of this is because social media exists. You're getting real-time, um, you know, videos of things happening. Otherwise, you'd have to wait for a sort of paragraph from the BBC telling you about <laughs> it. And so you're noticing this, right? And you see glitches such as when they're not quite sure what to do when Eric Adams um, goes off script and says, New York City can't handle this. This is a crisis. Yeah. And this is going to cost us $12 billion over the next few years. That's a that's a glitch, right? Because he's not supposed to, to do that. And, you know, the reaction, there's a reaction against him. But it's if you're. Um, you know, the same thing kind of happens in a humorous way when DeSantis was sending immigrants up to Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And they, they uh, demonstrated that when, <laughs> when their home turf is, uh, is invaded, they're very, very good at solving an immigration crisis. They got rid of them overnight. So, you know, the, these are the things that people start noticing and are like, oh, OK, so now I understand how it works. I understand democracy is a euphemism. Uh, for for basically your interest, and uh, now I don't don't trust you. So as trust is diminished, you know the the uh, the gears um, are lacking. You know the sufficient lubrication to keep to keep chugging along. Yeah, that's right. And and you know this is the this is the natural course of things. Oligarchies break down because uh, it's impossible for them to obscure their self interested mm-hmm. nature. 
uh, over the long term. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, this is uh, not not to be surprised, uh, not to should not be surprising. Um, so, so yeah, so so the, so the one point again, like takeaways from recognizing the regime. Number one, delegitimize these institutions if you can't take them over. Okay. Number two, uh, what what does this say about the the set of institutions that the right actually kind of should control? That should be home turf or own space for us. I mean, one thing I think we need to recognize. Well, to the extent that they're um, adjacent to mainstream civic society, they're probably getting subverted or made less effective by trying to copy mainstream civic society. So there's a significant Mm -hmm. defensive effort that needs to be undertaken. Mm -hmm. But even more than that, um, what we really need to move toward is a place where, uh, you know, right wing civic society is actually like affirmatively doing for our political people where we have political power, what mainstream civic society does for the progressive left. So mm-hmm. in, in other words, and again, I mean, I, I'm going to sound like a Hillsdale simp here, but, but what does Hillsdale do? They, they partner with red states to plant charter schools and they're partnering mm-hmm. with Texas to revamp Texas's entire statewide curriculum in all public mm-hmm. schools. That is a civic society function that like, you know, you can see, you know, Harvard or some other prestigious school designing curriculum for a blue state or planning schools with a blue state, you know, in a charter system like Hillsdale's mm-hmm. performing that function for for um, for for red states. That is like a very happy development. That's the kind of thing we need to see from our institutions. They need to be they need to be patronage networks. They need to be places that mm-hmm. hire Trump administration alum who are having trouble getting jobs anywhere else, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That we need that dynamic to start emerging, and and so actually this is all sort of preparatory uh, to my next article. Um, I raised this in article number two in the series, but article number three is going to be particularly about Christian institutions, how to how to defend mm-hmm. them and decouple them from existing. Uh, civic society and existing status hierarchies, and how to reorient them toward uh, the creation of alternative status hierarchies and filling mm-hmm. uh, what you might call a dissident uh, civic society function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a couple things here, and then uh, as we close out, I mean, one, you get the the award. I think you're the first person to say "simp" on on the American Reformer podcast. It's appropriate. Um, but this, this is, you know, the, the Hillsdale example you brought up is uh, people need to, I think they, they can't miss all the dynamics in place. So the charter school movement, um, which is something they've been instrumental in for, for a while and using, you know, their curriculum with their brand and the brand is now recognized as um, representing excellence as well as, um, you know, a friendliness to, to our civic uh, stances, our, our causes. Um, but also they're, you know, what they're doing is saying that there's tons of state money for charter schools, for parents to be, there's a way that parents can avail themselves of this opportunity and we're going to go give it to them. We don't have to go defund the Department of Education tomorrow. In fact, we can um, subvert pre-existing programs and tap into that and use it. So it's a very creative solution, I guess is my point. And that's what we have to, that's how we have to think. It's, you know, it's fine to chant the, you know, some of the tired 
conservative dogma from the pages of National Review. It's another thing to get really serious about um, recognizing these dynamics and then and then mm-hmm. actually combating them. So that that would be the first thing. The second the second thing um, we won't get into, into the Christian institutions or Christians in particular because that's coming up. So we don't want to ruin it for everybody. But one thing you brought up consistently about you know, essentially taking care of your own, right? So like on the on the left, it doesn't matter. You can actually sleep with a Chinese spy. You can literally commit, be guilty of espionage, like real espionage. And it doesn't matter that nothing happens to those people, right? If something does happen, they're quietly put away and put at a different post, as you've already, you've already indicated. Usually go to the university, hang out there for a while, and oh, you know, the next election cycle comes around, look who's advising the new candidates, right? So it's essentially no change. Or you may just stay in office altogether. Um, you're certainly not going to get in much trouble. And if any trouble comes around, it's purely performative to throw people off the scent. Whereas people on the right are very good at in- internal policing to, you know, to the nth degree. And they, they sort of carry the water for, for the left in this regard. Um, and this is what, you know, we're not going to get into it now, but why the, the discussion surrounding, uh, you know, the no enemies to the right moniker from Haywood, and there was discussion recently about this, is, is interesting, at least insofar as people are starting to recognize this dynamic and want to seriously consider um, you know, what, what to do about it, because what we're doing is bleeding personnel constantly. You know, if we really wanted Mike Anton in the next administration, um, you know, or, or in a high pro- profile job, you know, clearly he wanted to go teach and he's, and that's great. He's, he's still doing great work, but if you wanted him black at, back at BlackRock or Citibank to keep controlling those institutions, there would be no, no possibility of doing that at this point, as you already mentioned. And so the, figuring out how to take care, not only set up an alternative status hierarchy with alternative institutions, um, but also how to take care of your own people to keep them in influential positions um, is something else the right has to get very creative about because they've ignored it for so long. 100%. And, and I, can I, can I, um, a, a parting thought, which is like something that we need to write about at some point, somebody does, I, mm-hmm. I probably will, but in order for these for these uh, new institutions of civic society to emerge, um, we're going to need personnel to do that. And what that probably means is we need a movement at scale um, with like our most capable people, many of whom are still working at BlackRock and Goldman Sachs and places like that. We need them to um, we need them to be reorienting their economic lives to some extent to where they can either, mm-hmm. you know, directly build these sorts of institutions or, you know, play a, play a heavy supporting role in the construction of these institutions. So there, there needs to be mm-hmm. a movement of personnel um, and it needs to happen at some scale. Um, it, it probably looks like, you know, getting a lot of Christian high per, economic high performers uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to reorient and reorder their uh, commercial lives to some degree. Yeah, and I think um, I will just so I don't have to recite it now. And we've already mentioned Yarvin because uh, you use him a little bit here too. I wrote a, a piece a while back called Curtis Yarvin is Right, where I basically say that's that's what the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay did. I mean, we kind of have this Pollyanna view of them, but really they're doing this. They realized the limits to which they could gain real power in the given in the 
then current administration, they were all very successful and uh, generally wealthy or had patrons. And so, but they realized there's no way we're going to be able to rise to the ranks to where we could do it. So what we have to do is create an alter, a parallel system where we can, you know, over here, I can run the entire colony. Whereas if I'm back in England, I can only control, you know, a, a sort of little fiefdom um, because of the restrictions placed upon us. So anyway, there, there's hist- the point is there's historical parallels that are instructive. And if we're going to get creative, we're going to have to learn how to convert those um, and, and do it well. But Josh, these, I mean, this series you're starting um, is, is really great and instructive. Um, we'll see how, you know, I want it to go on forever, but uh, we'll see how many pieces you put out. But there will be more coming, so everyone should look out for that. Um, and if you haven't read the first two, the explainer, and then the second part, which is which is well, the first part's called the explainer. The second part is called revealing the regime, recognizing regime operation. Go look at those at AmericanReformer.org. Excellent, Timon. Thank you. It was good to be in the author seat for once. Uh, yes, I won't yeah, get change the pace for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, Don't let it go to your well, head. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Um, we're going to call this one a wrap. Uh, as a reminder, please go uh, review, rate this show on iTunes or wherever else you listen, Spotify, Podbean, any other purveyor of fine podcasts. Um, do, leaving those reviews and ratings uh, helps us to expand our reach. Um, and as always, you can find us at AmericanReformer.org or on Twitter. Our handle is at AmReformer. That's A-M Reformer. Thank you so much. And until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AM Reformer.